Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Brianna Coyle. Really appreciate Brianna joining me today. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, regardless of where you're at, a great way to support the show is to send me some health insurance referrals. Brianna spent a lot of time in New York. I'm licensed in New York. She's in Ohio now. I'm licensed in Ohio. Uh, licensed in 12 states across the country. And if, if necessary, I can get licensed in your state. So anywhere in the country that you need help with health insurance on any level, please contact me. The details for the sponsors of the Kelly Patrick Show are as follows. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Brianna Coyle. Uh, Brianna, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing very well. I appreciate you joining me for the show today. Um, For those of the Kelly Patrick Show listeners who have been familiar with the show for a long time, I've been recording the Kelly Patrick um, Show since 2017, and it was only over the past few years that I started to take a political turn at all. And so I'm still learning very much so about the world of liberty and things like that. So once I've been thrown into this world, really since Corona um, has happened, I've been trying to learn a little bit more about options outside of the traditional, you know, Republicans and Democrats. And uh, Brianna, you are, of course, more familiar with this world than I am. So I appreciate you joining me for the show today. Brianna, if it's all right, if you could introduce yourself to the Kelly Patrick Show audience. Who are you? Where are you from? What brought you into the world of, um, I guess you could say, being a little, little bit of a political figure? <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Hello to everyone who's listening. Um, yeah, so I'm Brianna. I'm a political, a libertarian political activist. Um, I want to say I got involved in politics roughly in late 2018 when I was trying to see who was running for New York governor. Also, I should mention that I was born and raised in New York City, so I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Um, and I was looking to see who was running for governor, and then I saw that there were people of multiple parties on the ballot and i found out about larry sharp and i'm like yeah this guy seems cool i like you know a lot of what he has to say and then i was like hmm libertarian party what is that and then started kind of like doing some internet deep dives into what the libertarian party is what libertarianism is and eventually i discovered the political ideology that has always described me i just didn't have a word for it and i feel like that's the same journey that a lot of people take right but there there are so many issues that people are passionate about all over the political spectrum but a lot of the times 
there's different types of like political activism. It's not always just issues based, not always electoralism, right? It, it, everyone has their own, uh, their own path with these things. And for me, the path that I had taken was one of third parties for quite some time. Okay. Um, so sounds like your introduction to the Libertarian Party was in large part with specifically Larry Sharp. I've been fortunate. I've had Larry Sharp on the show, I think, three or four times. Um, and wow, what a, a great guest. I have a lot of great memories of Larry Sharp. He was one of the first guys I heard. I watched his Joe Rogan Experience episode, which was pretty funny, actually, because at certain points of that episode, I don't know if you if you saw that episode, uh, uh, Brianna. I've seen clips of it. Okay. At certain points, he was explaining, when, you, when you're doing messaging for libertarian-type uh, ideas, um, you, you got to tread lightly sometimes, and there's an art to it. And Joe was basically saying public school teachers needed to be paid more. And Larry, of course, had an idea for New York that involved scaling down the size of the public school system. And they almost had like a heated like a, 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 an argument type situation. I think at, at one point, Larry was saying, well, okay, well, you sound like a Democrat. You're a Democrat. And, you know, it was <laughs> funny. And it wasn't like they hated each other or anything like that. But I'm a big fan of Larry Sharp. What was, so you saw his name on the ballot. Is that right? I actually, so I, I think it was on Ballotpedia or some website where I was just looking at the candidates. So I wasn't quite at the ballot yet. Okay. But um, it, it is funny that you mentioned that because it, I was still 17 at the time. It was Larry's K through 10 education plan that got me really interested in his campaign and the Libertarian Party, ironically enough. And I don't really share this story all too often, but I became a Libertarian because I was a truant in high school. I went to three public high schools in New York City. And I attempted online classes at one point, but before COVID, you couldn't legally do online classes because the state of New York didn't recognize most online programs, hmm. which is really ironic. Interesting. So, so, and I apologize, you would think I'm a little more on top of the details of Larry's uh idea or his proposal, but I know it was scaling down the size, taking out a lot of administrators, which, you know, studies mm -hmm. do show that a lot of those, you know, there's just so many administrators and there's not the focus on things that there should be. There's not the mm -hmm. uh, uh, decentralized, you know, um, autonomy for the, the school districts and things like that. But what was it mm -hmm. about Larry's proposal? Did it involve details about online schooling? I don't think it specifically mentioned online schooling at that time, but just the approach that he was taking was, seemed more pro-student to me than what the Democrats are always talking about, which is strange. And I don't think it's because Democrats care less, but I think that the, the process of forcing a cookie-cutter system onto students is detrimental for, you know, for their mental health and well-being. And a lot of people don't really think about alternatives. Like one of the things that Larry talked about was uh, trade schools. And for me, I didn't particularly want to be in a trade school, but I never thought that you should be forced to go to college if you wanted to do a trade. And that was something that he talked about. And nobody else was talking about that. Like no, no other politician that I had seen, at least, was talking about, you know, making uh, K through 12 education, K through 10, and then allowing room for charter schools or college prep or being admitted into college early so i just thought that was really cool and that's really what sort of got it got me listening because you know i was affected by that system very interesting so um so larry sharp of course was toward the beginning of your introduction into the world of the libertarian party have you ever met larry yeah of course i have <laughs> okay i know you're friends with with thomas and you were the camp I think you were involved with his campaign, and Thomas, I think, was, was uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, brought into the party even through Larry or something along those yes. lines? Yep, he also, so I would say me, Tom, and a bunch of other people found the Libertarian Party through Larry Sharp because Larry's campaign had a lot of reach compared to a lot of other Libertarians, and it just made people take a look. Even if people didn't agree, they might, you know, they might have awareness now that the party even existed. 
that's we could take this in a bunch of different directions. That's fascinating <laughs> because Larry, that's exactly what he does. I mean, think of what he's doing recently. Mm-hmm. I don't know about his partnership or his, him being friendly with um, Yang, Andrew Yang. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not. He's doing. Andrew Yang is trying to do the the forward party, which is of course not libertarian, but. Larry is, of course, a fan of the idea of third parties in general. Mm-hmm. It, is, yeah, that, is, honestly, that a, is that basically a summary of why, why those two are friendly based on your understanding? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say so. That's probably part of it. But, um, I mean, hey, Yang was even at, at Freedom Fest. And I don't follow everything too closely. But one of the reasons I've been interested in, in the forward party um, is just... They, I think it's because Yang has the money and the backing that a lot of other third-party um, entrepreneurs, so to speak, don't have. And I think that's why it's getting more public attention because the forward party already has more members than the LP does. Wow. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not talking about registration, but I'm talking about members. So the LP has under 20,000 card-carrying members. The forward party a few months ago was saying that they hit over 20,000 interesting i did not know that but again i think that's because you know of yang and being able to to get that media that a lot of people aren't able to do and i do i I, a lot of people i know don't think it's going to go very far or go anywhere i'm just taking a wait and see approach it's not really my ideological niche or anything but um I, i do agree with a lot of that idea such as ranked choice voting and I, but most of all, I agree with the strategy that they're taking, which is being a pack first, and then transforming into a party after they may, they reform the system. Because ultimately, and I've realized this after being in the LP for years, the system is not designed to allow third parties to win. At the end of the day, third parties can keep meeting the threshold to get on the ballot, but all the duopoly is going to do is raise the requirements every time. Especially in New York, is my understanding. Yeah. And as, so, for those of you listening, I, I've been on Thomas Queter's campaign for quite some time. I was his uh, last campaign manager for his U.S. Senate run. And, yeah, they needed for the him, Larry, and the rest of the candidates on the statewide uh, petition needed 45,000 signatures valid to get on the ballot, which is an incredible feat. And right now, the, it's going through court, and they're trying to see whether or not they'll be on the ballot. But um, that, that's just what's going to keep happening, in my opinion. Okay. Um, and, and there was, what was his name? Hayes? I also interviewed Sean, Sean Hayes. Sean yes. Hayes. Yeah, I had him on the show. That was fascinating. He described himself, if I remember correctly, and I do so many of these episodes, I... I um, mm. don't want to butcher anything, but I think he almost described himself as like a, a, a JFK, a Kennedy type Democrat, but he run, was mm-hmm. running at the time as a libertarian. And he explained that Larry Sharp brought him into the party also, and he was running um, as a, a, a libertarian, which I thought to be, you know, I found to be very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, New York also has fusion voting for, Anyone who doesn't know what fusion voting is, it's basically um, this weird system that only like eight states in the country have where a candidate can be on the ballot with multiple party lines. So even if somebody is a registered Democrat, they can be on the ballot as a libertarian. Interesting. And that's a good thing? Um, I think it is. A lot of people don't. But here's why I think it is. I think it is because it helps get rid of the, the, the media stalemate. So when a lot of third-party candidates are, are running, they don't get media attention, right? But if you change your registration and you enter a Democratic or Republican primary, you get that attention. And even if you lose the primary in New York, you can keep running in the general. There are other states that have sore loser laws that prevent that from happening, but New York is not one of those states. So in New York, it's entirely plausible for somebody who is, you know, a libertarian or a Green Party member or otherwise to run for office as a Democrat or a Republican and then still be on the ballot as a libertarian, as a Green, or whatever party line you want, basically. 
Interesting. Okay. So, so I think there's some upsides to that, but that's really like a, a lot of people aren't a fan of it. Interesting. Um, so Brianna, how would you describe your, yourself politically today? Um, if you had to, a I brief guess- summary, sorry, I know that's a very vague question, but <laughs> just if you, you know, I would say I'm a small government fan or something like, you know, something like that, or maybe even try to get to close to no government, something like that. How would you, um, how would you describe yourself? If I had to be both brief and specific, I would say that I'm a radical liberal. I, I am, um, and I don't tell everyone this depending on the audience, but I am an anarchist, um, an individualist anarchist, a free market anarchist to be more per, uh, precise. But um, in that I'm philosophically an anarchist, but I don't necessarily advocate for um, any type of approach that's kind of just, you know, ripping the rug out from in, under everything. I, pre- I would prefer a more gradual uh, approach that involves lots of, like, cultural changes towards a freer society. Interesting. If that makes any sense. I think so. And, and there's so many different labels and different, you know, turns and details that go into all of, you know, the history of anarchy. Do you have any favorite... Um, or anyone in particular maybe that you, you admire historically who identified or identifies now maybe as an anarchist? Um, I'm actually going to shout out a contemporary anarchist. I'm going to go with Kevin Carson. Uh, he writes for C4SS, which is Center for Stateless Society. And I'd say, I'd say the people who write for C4SS tend to be quote-unquote left-wing market anarchists and they seem to be the closest to my ideology and i wouldn't say exactly but just in comparison to the you know the ancaps or the ancoms i don't particularly fit with either of those interesting okay um and you are not are you currently a member of a political party um as of right now it's funny you brought that up um, I am. I recently just became the public relations director for the United States Pirate Party. <laughs> what the Pirate Party? What's that? <laughs> what is that? Oh boy! So the Pirate Party, or actually the Pirate Parties, are an international movement of parties that focus on um, copyright reform, you know, intellectual property issues. And, and reforming uh, that t- those systems. And they have elected officials in other countries. It's not just, you know, this is some rando party that's sprung up. They've been around the block. And now they're not quite so big in the U.S. right now. However, in other countries, they are much more well-known. And I also think part of that is because I feel like in European countries, they might care more about copyright issues than Americans do. But that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Wow. So, so what, what issues are most important to you with, within the, the Pirate Party? Um, one thing they're really big on is an open internet culture, using open source technologies and just freely spreading information. And, I mean, a lot of libertarians share this view. Not all, of course. But a lot of libertarians would say that. You know, copyright infringements or intellectual property should be abolished because they're victimless crimes. There is no victim if you're, for example, pirating a movie. You shouldn't be thrown in jail for that. Mm. And I think that's a a big place of overlap between the the libertarians and the pirates. Okay, now um, what about some of the, the internet, you know, some people have went to prison historically. What's that one guy's name, Ross Ulbricht? Ulbricht, yeah. Yeah, um, he's in prison. I forget how long he is serving. Um, mm-hmm. But he basically created a website where people were doing what turned into being, um, I guess, illegal things. And, of course, it bothered the government mm-hmm. on this website. I know that's a very vague description. But what, what are your thoughts on, on that situation? And does that apply to what you feel is so important? Uh, it does. I mean, he shouldn't be in prison for creating a site. If there are people that are doing illegal activities um, on a specific website, the authorities should prosecute those people. 
and not the person who created the website itself. And like any website, you know, a website can be used for good or bad. Anything on the internet can be really. And anything in the world can, even tools, even cars, right? Most people use cars to drive. Not Most people don't use cars to kill people, but it is a tool. And that's how I kind of see things like websites and torrents and stuff like that. Okay. Um, do you think people, this is a random question. My interview style is often very ADHD, so I just bounce all over the place. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> Um, do you think people should be able to just buy and sell, let's say heroin or, you know, ecstasy or whatever type of drug online, um, just kind of free market style? Yeah, absolutely. I I don't think I'm not advocating for any, you know, any heroin use, but I don't think it should be illegal. I don't think people should have their lives ruined over being thrown in jail for it. I think if people are addicted it should be treated as a mental health or a medical issue and not as a legal issue okay yeah i i would agree i know that's a a a jarring response for many people to hear especially if it's if it's new to them you know some people and what i mean is not you know a lot of people who will listen to this episode are all already very familiar with the libertarian world Mm -hmm. um but i actually my podcast, at least the, the goal is to reach out to, I, I, there's like a local MMA community in Ohio oh. and Kentucky. And I try to get people to listen to the show from those episodes. So I try to get the carryover. So Democrats or Republicans or those type mm-hmm. of people. So if they hear that response and they're like, whoa, 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 I like the freedom thing, but you're advocating for, just, I mean, I guess you're saying people should be able to buy cocaine or heroin at a gas station. What about meth? Well, when it comes to freedom, um, people often forget about personal responsibility. That is a part of a free society. And again, I'm not advocating for any use. And I think there's plenty of drugs that, you know, recreational drugs that people shouldn't have an issue with. Right. But again, it all comes down to force. If somebody is coercing someone into, you know, doing drugs or forcing someone to, you know, take a needle or something, that's a violation of the non-aggression principle, the NAP. But if somebody just wants to go purchase drugs and just, you know, do it on their own property at home, who cares, right? I, I don't think people should be getting arrested over that, then, you know, losing losing their homes, their families, their livelihoods, just overdoing something like that. And a lot of drugs, like we've seen with cannabis, the public perception is changing on them. Now, most people think that marijuana should be legal. And I think in another 10 years, most people will think that psychedelics should be legal because of all the studies that we've been doing have been showing tremendous health benefits. Now, I don't think we're going to get those same health benefits with things like heroin, meth, and cocaine. But again, that's not the, the angle that I approach it from. I approach it purely from a should it be legal type angle. Like, is it the government's responsibility to protect people from themselves? And in this case, I would say no. Okay. Um, and I'm bouncing all over the place again. Um, you, you described yourself as, as uh, being an anarchist. Um, some critics of anarchy would say, what about the poor people? How are they going to get their kids a good education if there's no government schools? Um, there wouldn't necessarily be a lack of public schools if there was no state. They would just be public and not run by the state. They would be run by the, the communities. And there would be all different types of systems to begin with. A lot of anarchists are proponents of homeschooling or unschooling or self-directed education. There are so many different things there. But in terms of um, welfare and poverty, the last thing to go, in my opinion, should be the social safety net, not the first thing. I think when anarchists advocate to get rid of welfare as the number one thing, they are sorely mistaken. I think that we should have a better system. We should definitely use taxes more efficiently because a lot of these government programs are incredibly wasteful and don't actually help the poor. But the things that do should be the last to go. 
I think we should be going after things like cutting the military budget first. Okay. So, and I've heard, uh, we keep, this is like a, a big episode giving Larry Sharp a bunch of shout outs. Um, <laughs> but I've heard him describe the concept of, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he's described it as being incrementalism. And mm-hmm. so although you describe yourself as an anarchist, it sounds like realistically, you know, if you had your way, you would try to take steps in that direction instead of just burning it all down and starting from scratch. You would try, yeah. would you describe that as being more of a minarchist approach to start with? Um, I don't know if I'd say it's a minarchist approach. I mean, if you're talking about an approach, sure, I guess. I think the current system which benefits the most people and gives the most people freedom right now would be like a social democracy but um in terms of where i philosophically align i do believe that you know the state is illegitimate and humans own themselves but you know that's a lot for some people to wrap their heads around and in all honesty we're never going to see anything close to that in my lifetime the next maybe 500 years we just won't it's not happening and i accept that but i would still like to to educate and to inform people, you know, of these philosophies that I think are just inherently correct. But yeah, I definitely would take an incrementalist approach. I don't like the thought of just mad maxing it. I'm not pro revolution. I think that would just end up being a horrible bloodbath. So yeah. To me, having a culture change is the number one most important thing to a successful anarchist society. Because if you suddenly just get rid of the state and, you know, there is no force that is protecting people's rights and people don't value other people's rights, it's not going to work out. Now, if we have other people that are anarchists that are living together and they have the same moral compass then it has a greater chance of actually working. But again, these are all just theories anyway. At the end of the day, all of these conversations are purely theoretical, and we will never know how it will turn out. On the Kelly Patrick Show, I kind of bounce around and try to interview different libertarian or liberty-centric type guests. For some mm-hmm. reason, that's been my, my thing for the past couple years. Um, and once again, my interview style is very ADD, so I apologize. But I, I recently stumbled onto Petri Friedman, who's Milton Friedman's grandson. I don't know. Are you familiar with Petri? I'm not, actually. So very fascinating. Of course, Milton Friedman was, um, I don't know, maybe the most famous um, free market economist of all time. And then his son was a, a, a more of an anarchist than even his than even Milton. So David Friedman was even more of an anarchist. And then his, his grandson, Patrie Friedman, is big-time anarchist. But he's doing something called seasteading. Okay. Or he's trying to. So you brought up the topic that we probably will not see an anarchist society in the next, you know, in our life or the next 500 years even. And, I mean, I don't, I don't hell, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree it seems pretty unrealistic to see all these people with power just give up their power mm-hmm. um so i you know i i hope it i hope you're wrong on that but realistically i i think you've, there's something to that um but uh Petri friedman um is a, an interesting guy because he's explored through the the funding from peter Thiel and others um has mm-hmm. uh, uh, founded and he's um i think the executive director of this seasteading institute so they've been exploring the idea of making basically new countries out in the middle of the ocean oh, okay <laughs> very abstract i know wow. very crazy but um that is a concept yeah yeah so so then and it, I think he ended up determining, which is pretty cool, that they spent all this money to do the research. And basically, Patri right now is like, well, that was a little bit more, it was going to be more expensive than we thought it would be. And so they never even tried it. But they're trying to find land. I forget where. Um, they found a big piece of land. They're trying to build what they're calling seasteading, but just basically find a new piece of land and start a little community with their own type of government. Um, I don't know why, but it, it seemed relevant when you when you when you mentioned the idea of us not, you know, 
you know, burning everything down, starting from scratch. Uh, I just thought that was uh, uh, yeah, fascinating. No, it, it's definitely, it's definitely cool. I just, I don't know if there is any feasible way to just start from scratch because every piece of land on this planet is pretty much owned by someone or some entity, right? You can't just go off into the woods and start, you know, build a house or start a community, right? You're still beholden to the the occupying country. Even on um, Native American uh, reserves, right, they're still beholden to federal laws. Yeah. Which is, which is something to think about. Yeah, the, the, that makes sense. Nobody has land out there kind of like the power in government thing. Nobody's just like, okay, here you go. It's very, that's a very fascinating topic. I know this has taken an interesting direction, but uh, <laughs> yeah. they're not making more land. I mean, you've seen all these, what is it, BlackRock or these different companies right now that are just mm-hmm. buying up just historically high numbers of property all across the country. Kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and you can't just opt out of the U.S. government or, you know, whatever government you live under. The most you can do is revoke your citizenship, and that just means you're not a citizen. It doesn't mean you're not beholden to the laws of the country. So, yeah, that that's why I think that all, all efforts to... I mean, there is another path, and that's basically having an armed community and then saying, you know, if the friends threaten us, we'll shoot back at them. But I just don't see that going well. Mm. <laughs> that is an option. I don't think it's a very good one. I don't think it's going to work. It's just going to end in a lot of people being dead. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think in some ways, many Americans feel that's the type of route we should go, right? Yeah, and I, I think it, it's just... Uh, I have so many issues with it because then so many innocent people get caught in the crossfire. It's not just the people that want to fight each other that are, that are involved in war, you know? So consistent with the non-aggression principle, um, you're not going to advocate for any type of violence. Basically you're saying under any circumstance. Yeah. Um, unless it's purely defensive. And even then I try to be pretty strict about, you know, what defensive means. Because I do think, I do think that most issues can be resolved without physical violence. Okay. Do you, are there any wars that the United States has been in that you feel our involvement was justified? Hmm. I don't even know how, I I don't even know how I would answer that question. I just felt like it was a good one. So I threw it at you. So, I guess my answer is going to be a little weird. The only one where I think it might have been would have been World War II if they had entered for the right reasons, which they didn't. Because the Americans didn't even know that um, Jewish people were being genocided, genocided until they got there. Until they got to Germany. So, I mean, but if, if I had to pick one, it would be that one. Otherwise, I'd say no. But it's not really a United States thing. It's just, you know, a, a human thing. I don't really uh, war bad. <laughs> sure. Um, were you a fan of Joe Jorgensen? Uh, yeah, I like Joe. She wasn't my, my top pick, but you- I still ended up. Uh, voting for her. Were you involved in the process? See, I, I'm very naive when it comes to the uh, Libertarian uh, National Party now or even before the Mises Caucus takeover. I, mm-hmm. I was naive about all that too, but were you involved at all in that process? Uh, yes, actually. I was a delegate in 2020. Uh, I was delegate for Vermin and Spike. Okay. So I don't know if, if you... Um, paid attention back then, but Spike was actually Vermin Supreme's running mate and not Jorgensen's. Yep, I did I did know that. That was very fascinating. Mm. I thought Jacob Hornberger was going to win that, and that was weird. Or interesting. I was trying to follow it. I didn't know what was going on. So, Jacob Hornberger had a ceiling. The people who were going to vote for him were going to vote for him no matter what, Uh, but the other candidates could also get the people who were voting for Hornberger, and that's pretty much what happened. I, I think there was a sort of uh, runoff type process. I don't remember the details too finely. It was a couple of years ago. But um, 
Yeah, and nobody thought Joe was going to win, honestly. <laughs> um, a lot of people suspected that Armstrong might or John Mons might, um, or even um, Jim Gray. Jim Gray and Larry had thrown in their hats at one point, too, but, which I thought was a bit late, and I thought that the delegates wouldn't care at that point, and I ended up being right about that because they came in, like, fifth or something. But um, in any case, yeah, with... With Vermin, I thought he was the best candidate and had the best team, and they were ready for a post-nomination process. However, a lot of people just couldn't get past the the boot, the image thing, which I understand, but I think that the fact that the party didn't have any media really to begin with, and they did that, sure, there would be a lot of naysayers, but it would still get them on the map and get them in front of a lot of people. So it was a missed opportunity for sure. Um, I'm not very aware of um, the details of Vermin Supreme and what's most important to him, things like that. So I will not pretend to be. Um, would you agree with the statement that when it comes to anarchy, okay, there's an, mm-hmm. an um, caps and then there's an comms. And so, if that's the spectrum, that Vermin Supreme would be a little closer to the ANCOM. Um, I don't know if I would... Ins- I mean, if you're just saying that ANCAP's the ANCOMs of the spectrum, then I guess I would have to say that I agree. But most anarchists don't consider ANCAPs to be anarchists at all, which is a whole other debate that I'm not going to get into on the show. Okay. But the, the spectrum to most anarchists would be different. They would be like, uh, I don't know mutualists or something more on the right and then the ANCOMs on the left. Okay. Interesting. Um, I know uh, uh, Vermin Supreme has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is not a part of the Libertarian Party anymore, is that right? Or he was? Uh, or do I, you know? I don't know precisely, but I don't think he is. I mean... After, after the takeover, a bunch of people who have been in the party for a long time have left. And now, granted, Vermin wasn't in it his whole life or anything. But I know a lot of people who were. Um, I definitely know people who were in the party for 30, 40 years who are now no longer members. They're independents now. Okay. Um, and to the extent that you want to, how would you describe the old regime and then the, the current regime, the takeover or whatever it's called. Do you have a summary of what happened? Um, I don't know if I'll go into a whole summary, but at least with the the old guard, I do think that there were a lot of issues. I thought that they were milk toast, that they were too afraid to have what I would consider bold libertarian messaging. But what the Mises Caucus would consider bold libertarian messaging would be something drastically different from my vision. Like to me, bold and principled messaging is standing up for libertarian beliefs. For example, open borders. The Libertarian Party has always supported open borders. Every libertarian thinker has supported open borders. And yet the party would always just be like, yeah, we can't really say that, though we'll offend the conservatives. Um, and that was my biggest problem with the, the pragmatic old guard. But it never had anything to do with, you know, PR nightmares, which is the current scenario, and I won't get too far into that, but for anyone who just looks up the Libertarian Party, you'll see a bunch of articles about what happens <laughs> and a bunch of not-so-great press the last couple of months. Okay, um, the open borders topic is very fascinating. I'm trying to think. You say, would, would you consider Rothbard to be Libertarian? Yes. Okay. Wasn't he at some point uh, not a complete supporter of open borders or I don't know? Um, I'm, I'm not too familiar with his late works, but I know that that was an issue that he had agreed with for as far as I know. Okay. And a lot, a lot of other things that were pretty standard libertarian positions. And open borders was, you know, just one that everyone pretty much... Almost everyone pretty much accepted. I mean, it was in the LP platform until 2006. Didn't say open borders specifically in that language, but there was a sentence 
in the immigration plank that said, we support the abolition of border patrol. And actually, to, to get into that a little bit more, I would say that there are three libertarian positions on immigration. The first one being less immigration restrictions to some extent. Whatever the extent is can be debated among the liberals and the minarchists, but just to some extent, right? And then the second uh, libertarian position would be open borders, freedom of movement, Ellis Island system, etc. The third position would be the anarchist position, which is abolishing borders. But I don't think that there is a legitimate libertarian case for closed borders. I think that's just that's just authoritarian nonsense. Earlier, we talked about like incrementalism. And mm -hmm. one of the obstacles I have heard when it comes to discussing open borders would be, yeah, in a perfect world, we should have open borders. If someone wants to come here from another country, like my wife is from Cuba. She came here in 2014. Mm -hmm. I mean, she and all, pretty much all the Cubans I know like come here and they work their asses off. And that's, yeah. that's great. And that's not just Cubans. That's, you know, Mexicans and all sorts of immigrants. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in theory, that's great. We should have more of those people coming in here and working. But we have this giant welfare state that does not make it sustainable at all. So when we're talking about uh, incrementalism uh, in a um, in a open borders type system, would you say it would be very important to first address the giant welfare state? No, not at all, actually. So there is a principle that the the radical caucus had, um, which was basically that. There, there doesn't have to be an order of events. For example, if your issue is, if we let in too many people, then the welfare state will collapse. Good, because we don't want the welfare state to exist. That's even more of a reason to get rid of welfare. There should be no reason that we're limiting people because of that, and especially because that's never going away. Right now, both legal and illegal immigration is a net positive on the economy. Like, no matter how people want to look at it, Illegal immigrants are not taking, like, more welfare or anything like that. That's a bunch of, that's a big boogeyman conversation. But in fact, a lot of them are paying taxes and not receiving anything in return. There's actually a really good website, um, openborders.info, I believe, that showcases a bunch of different arguments around open borders for and against. If anyone wants to go take a look at that. But, um... Yeah, another point I would make is that I just, hmm, how do I phrase this? The country started ha with having open borders. That's what the country has always been known for, being the new world, being a place where people can leave behind their old lives and start anew. And that's just not the case anymore. Immigration only started being restricted in the first place in like the 1900s. So that's, that's a relatively new thing to have immigration restrictions, especially to the extent that we have today. I don't think anyone should be waiting 10, 20 years to come to the country. It is quite the process. We're working on getting my mother-in-law. She lives in Madrid right now. We're trying to get her here, and that has taken years already. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It sounds and like... Even just, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, go, go on. on. No, you're good. I was just going to say from like a you know, a more a libertarian point of view, we believe in individual rights and not, you know, collectivism. There is no reason why we should value somebody, you know, that lives in our country any more than somebody that lives in another country. A lot of people make the argument that, you know, we have to protect, you know, Americans over, you know, non-Americans, stuff like that. But what, what, why should that matter at all if we're all human? But that's just the more of a preachy approach, but that's definitely how I feel about the subject anyway. It sounds like immigration is a, in borders, is a very important topic to you. Yeah. I mean, in general, I do have a soft spot for a lot of the more social issues. I mean, immigration is both a social and an economic issue. But for me personally, I am more heavily invested in defending people's civil liberties. 
So topics that involve civil liberties are infinitely more important to me than um, taxes going up. And a lot of people get very upset when I say that. But I think, it, like, for example, there are people who will vote no to legalizing weed because, oh, no, they're going to tax the weed. I think getting hundreds of thousands of people out of jail is more of a net positive to liberty than a tax increase. I think Thomas Massey voted against that. Yes, exactly. I think freeing people from prison is far more important than whether or not weed is taxed. Or or not even just freeing people from prison, but just getting rid of the laws that throw people in prison to begin with. And that affects everybody. The the entire the entire prison system just destroys lives, destroys families. And I, I think it's a very privileged notion to care more about whether or not marijuana is taxed than whether or not somebody can be thrown in jail for it. And you could substitute marijuana with X, Y, or Z. But that's definitely a more recent thing that I wanted to bring up. Interesting. Okay. Um, so of the social issues that are most important to you, of course, you address the drug war, you address borders. Is there anything else that's, that's uh, kind of a hot button topic for you when it comes to social issues specifically? Because you said those are on average more important to you. Yeah. Um, I would say the ones that are probably closest to me would be like LGBT issues and, and youth related issues. If I had to absolutely choose, but I'm definitely very big on uh, criminal justice reform as well. And the whole spectrum that that involves, which is many things just, you know, not just the drug war, but also reforming the, the system essentially. And just really, I care about defending people's rights and ensuring that they're not getting taken away and then improving people's lives and well-being because really taxes are not going away we're not going to yes taxation is theft but we're not going to get rid of all taxes what we can do is we can try to decrease taxes we can try to spend them more efficiently we can try to cut things that could be cut such as cough cough the the endless military budget (laughs) but yeah, if I if I had if I had to choose a few, like I said, things that involve civil liberties. It's 2022 right now. Of course, we're recording the episode today in August of 2022. Uh, right now, when it comes to LGBT issues, how would you describe mm-hmm. the current climate? Of course, this is, I mean, as polarizing of a topic in our country right now is anything, but what would be your summary of what's going on? I think what's going on is absolutely disturbing. I think half of the country is essentially getting their information from not so great sources. And they're using these boogeyman scenarios as a means of attacking people and of discriminating against them and even prompting hate crimes against them. Like, back in the 70s and 80s, people literally got killed for being gay. And this still happens in other countries, right? But it happened in our country, too. People got killed for being gay. That, hasn't ha- that doesn't really happen anymore. We've made so many advances throughout my lifetime that the fact that we're even seeing us walking backwards right now on these issues is terrifying for people. And especially as someone who's, you know, grown up in New York City where everyone is really just free to be themselves without fear of persecution, I, I, it's not the same for people that might be living in Florida, for example, or Texas. In Texas, they're trying to pass laws that take um, LGBT kids away from their parents if their parents are supportive because they're accusing the parents of being abusive if they are supportive parents. And then they're trying to shove those kids into the foster system or whatever they're trying to do. It, it's ludicrous. And the entire, the entire climate is just dangerous. It is going to cost people's lives. And now conservatives might think that they're fighting some, you know, some holy war against who they believe to be child predators or whatever. But the data just doesn't, 
it, it doesn't hold up their argument whatsoever. It's really, it's the same thing like what you've seen after 9-11 with all of the people that started attacking Muslims. It's the same concept as that. So it's propaganda. Yeah. Um, okay, so of course, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine is a, a very prominent figure right now in the country, and an issue has been parents and how they deal with a kid who comes to them or however they come about uh, determining that they were born a male and they would like to be a female. Mm -hmm. Do you think the government should be regulating if a parent can authorize for, let's say, a 13-year-old kid to get, I don't know, um, or maybe even an 11-year-old kid to have a, a procedure done or to take medication or treatment that is going to prevent them through going through puberty the way that they were you know, going to had the procedure not been done. Do you think there should be regulations on that? So, first of all, I'm going to start off by saying, no, I don't think the state should should regulate that. But I'm going to go into that by saying there are no there are no cases in which kids are getting surgery, which conservatives love to say a lot. That's not happening. And even with hormones, that's still very rare. Puberty blockers, blockers, however, are, are also rare, but it doesn't have the same effects as hormones. It just delays puberty. Hormones would have the opposite effect, which is bringing, you know, giving people more testosterone or more estrogen, right? But um, in any case, this is very, this is not really happening on this large scale that people think it is. And in any case, I don't believe the parents should just be able to go to a doctor and be like, "Yeah, put my kid on hormones," right? I think that there should be an evaluation process in which doctors are talking to the kid and, you know, evaluating what the situation is. And that should be for, you know, whether or not they, you know, whether or not they, they might be trans. There is usually a series of steps that are followed by the medical community. And I, I don't think that the decision should fall to the government in any case whatsoever. I think that the government should be able to protect the rights of parents and children, I don't think the government should be able to take that away, which is what's happening in, in Florida. Okay. Um, I actually recently interviewed um, Buck Angel. Oh, okay. I, I assume you're familiar with Buck. Um, uh, yes, not, not too much, but yes. And um, he is viewed as someone who... At, the, at least the perception is that he's kind of more on the um, – I'm not even going to talk political because I, I, he didn't identify as anything political at all, um, mm -hmm. but more on the anti-woke side of the trans issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you could go back. I should find the, the episode number, but people can listen to it. And um, what he was describing really was basically what you just said, I think. And that is that if a kid wants to do something, they shouldn't be able to do it probably when they're like eight or 10 or something like that, but they should go through at least a couple years of therapy prior. And if that is what they end up doing, I think I, I tried to pin him down with it and he ended up saying, you know, he's met kids who are 15 years old that he thinks are 16, that maybe they could go through some, some uh, procedures or, you know, treatments, mm -hmm. things like that. And so it wasn't really anything radical. I was kind of expecting it to be a little bit more, um, more uh, controversial in a way, but it was, more, mm -hmm. it was in, a, in a lot of ways just sounded kind of like, like his, his parents, of course, he was born a female um, and tra has now been transitioned, um, describes himself as transsexual for 30 years, has been taking uh, uh, testosterone. And yeah. what he said was that his, his parents were just, it sounds like they were ideal with it. They were very supportive, uh, loving, mm -hmm. and now he didn't start going through any treatments till he was like closer to age 30. So that's, you know, that's of yeah. course not quite addressing the issue, but it's, it's interesting to actually hear the hysteria and that probably goes for both sides. Um, mm -hmm. and then to actually try to drill in and, and have, have conversations about, you know, like really what's going on and what people actually think about it without all the crazy, crazy emotion involved. 
Yeah. And I mean, to, to be frank, a lot of people will just say, well, then they should wait till they're 18. But the problem is, if a person really is trans, forcing them to go through, you know, the, the wrong puberty, a puberty that will give them body dysphoria, will increase their chances of suicide. And puberty blockers just delay the process. If, if a kid takes puberty blockers and then decides that they're not trans and then goes off of them, they will still go through their natural puberty. So, you know, and, and they've been proven to be pretty much safe, unlike what a lot of people are fear-mongering over them. And I just think a lot of this stems from, one, people not researching, and two, people not actually knowing these stories or hearing them from the people whom it directly affects. Because there are plenty of people who will tell you what their story is, what could have been done better in their youth, um, especially for a lot of trans folks who didn't really start transitioning until they were 30. A lot of people wish they had done it sooner. So, you know, there, there are tons of stories out there and there are tons of, you know, data. There's entire, you know, uh, communities around this that can discuss these issues. But the hysteria itself is going to cost people their lives. And when it comes to, and I don't want to like keep like throwing conservatives under the bus, but on this issue, they have to be because no matter what, they just don't want, they just don't want LGBT people to exist. And here's why. If we take the parental rights argument, for example, if you have a parent who is, is supportive, they want to take their kids away from that parent. So it really, at the end of the day, they only care about parental rights when it's a parent who is forcing their kids to not be trans. At least that's what I've seen. Interesting. I, I know there's a lot of, um, I mean, it's such an emotional, I found from an early age that when you talk to people about parenting at all, I'm not even talking about this, yeah. uh, but any type of parenting stuff, like, oh, if your kid does this, you should spank him on the butt. Some parents will be like, whoa, fuck you. You know, I mean, it, it, it gets pretty heated really yeah. quick when you come into the, the topic of how others should parent. So I know that, that specifically with this issue, it's like one of the more um, emotionally charged topics that I can remember really happening in our country at all. Yeah, and I mean, what do people care about most? Children and animals. If you had to pick a topic. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they do. I, you see people saying things about uh, animals. You know, they like animals more than, more than people. And, and um, you know, there's probably some truth to that. I mean, it, yeah. wh what do you think about that? Should there be laws about killing animals? Ooh, that's an interesting topic. Um, I think there should be animal welfare laws. I think the extent would obviously have to be debated. And a lot of libertarians would disagree with this, but like to me, I do think that the NAP should apply to some extent to animals. What that extent might be, um, is it might, it might vary between different animals. Um, for example, people don't value a fish the same as they value a dog or a horse. But I definitely think that things like factory farms and, you know, animal abuse are just awful. Interesting. Are, are you, um, do you have strong feelings about like people who eat meat or anything? Uh, I'm so, I'm not a vegan. I am sympathetic towards vegans. But to me, I kind of see it as, you know. Animals eat other animals. Humans are animals. It is the circle of life. My biggest issue is just the process in which we do that. So I'm typically more pro-hunting than I am pro-factory farming. And I'm not against, like, humane farms. Okay. Sounds, sounds pretty rational. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Brianna, I really appreciate you joining me on the show today. I think we're coming up close to an hour that kind of flew by. Um, yeah, for real. Bef before we wrap things up, do you have anything you'd like to mention? Any, um, you know, plugs or anything that you would like to, to get in before we start to wrap the episode up? Oh, I would just want to say you hit me on like all of my favorite topics somehow <laughs> just by accident. It worked out really well. Okay, good. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah.
But um, I guess there is one thing that I would like to mention to anyone who might be listening um, from Ohio. Keep tabs on my social media. I'm currently working with Americans for Prosperity to basically do a criminal justice reform event here in Columbus. And still being a little bit low-key about it because we're still getting the details finalized. But if anyone would like to keep tabs on that, please do. It's going to be great. And other than that, uh, I guess I should plug my socials like a normal person. Um, I'm usually B1 Coil on the interwebs. And yeah, I think that's all. Good stuff. Well, once again, Brianna Coyle, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. 